Hello, and welcome to This Is Storytime, a very special series by This Is It podcast. This is part three of a four-part series. If you are joining for the first time today, please do go back and listen to part one and part two. Without further ado, we will continue. The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, written by L. Frank Baum, read by Emily Barrett. Chapter 7. The Great Battle Between Good and Evil Ack listened gravely to the recital of Claus, stroking his beard the while with the slow, graceful motion that betokened deep thought. He nodded approvingly when Claus told how the nooks and fairies had saved him from death, and frowned when he heard how the Agwas had stolen the children's toys. At last he said, From the beginning I have approved the work you are doing among the children of men and it annoys me that your good deeds should be thwarted by the Agwas. We immortals have no connection whatever with the evil creatures who have attacked you. Always have we avoided them, and they, in turn, have hitherto taken care not to cross our pathway. But in this matter I find they have interfered with one of our friends, and I will ask them to abandon their persecutions, as you are under our protection." Claus thanked the Master Woodsman most gratefully and returned to his valley, while Ack, who never delayed carrying out his promises, at once traveled to the mountains of the Aguas. There, standing on the bare rocks, he called on the king and his people to appear. Instantly, the place was filled with throngs of the scowling Aguas, and their king, perching himself on a point of rock, demanded fiercely, Who dares call on us? It is I, the master woodsman of the world, responded Ack. Here are no forests for you to claim cried the king angrily. We owe no allegiance to you, nor to any immortal. That is true, replied Ack calmly. Yet you have ventured to interfere with the actions of Claus, who dwells in the Laughing Valley and is under our protection. Many of the Aguas began muttering at this speech, and their king turned threateningly on the master woodsman. You are set to rule the forests, but the plains and the valleys are ours, he shouted. Keep to your own dark woods, we will do as we please with Claus. You shall not harm our friend in any way, replied Ack. Shall we not? asked the king impudently. You will see, our powers are vastly superior to those of mortals and fully as great as those of immortals. It is your conceit that misleads you, said Ack sternly. You are a transient race, passing from life into nothingness. We who live forever pity but despise you. On earth you are scorned by all, and in heaven you have no place. Even the mortals after their earth life enter another existence for all time, and so are your superiors. How then dare you, who are neither mortal nor immortal, refuse to obey my wish? The Aguas sprang to their feet with menacing gestures, but their king motioned them back. Never before, he cried to Ack, while his voice trembled with rage, has an immortal declared himself the master of the Aguas. Never shall an immortal venture to interfere with our actions again for we will avenge your scornful words by killing your friend Claus within three days. Nor you nor all the immortals can save him from our wrath. We defy your powers. Be gone, master woodsman of the world. In the country of the Aguas, you have no place. It is war, declared Ack with flashing eyes. It is war, returned the king savagely. In three days, your friend will be dead. The master turned away and came to his forest of Burzi, where he called a meeting of the immortals and told them of the defiance of the Aguas and their purpose to kill Claus within three days. The little folk listened to him quietly. What shall we do? asked Ack. These creatures are of no benefit to the world, said the prince of the Nooks. We must destroy them. Their lives are devoted only to evil deeds, said the prince of the Riles. We must destroy them. They have no conscience and endeavor to make all mortals as bad as themselves, said the queen of the fairies. We must destroy them. They have defied the great Ack and threatened the life of our adopted son, said the beautiful queen Zerline. We must destroy them. The master woodsman smiled. You speak well, said he. These Aguas we know to be a powerful race, and they will fight desperately, yet the outcome is certain. 
For we who live can never die, even though conquered by our enemies, while every Agua who is struck down is one foe less to oppose us. Prepare then for battle, and let us resolve to show no mercy to the wicked. Thus arose that terrible war between the immortals and the spirits of evil which is sung of in Fairyland to this very day. The king Agua and his band determined to carry out the threat to destroy Claus. They now hated him for two reasons. He made children happy, and was a friend of the master woodsman. But since Axe's visit, they had reason to fear the opposition of the immortals, and they dreaded defeat. So the king sent swift messengers to all parts of the world to summon every evil creature to his aid. And on the third day, after the declaration of war, a mighty army was at the command of the king Agua. There were three hundred Asiatic dragons breathing fire that consumed everything it touched. These hated mankind and all good spirits, and there were the three-eyed giants of Tattery, a host in themselves who liked nothing better than to fight. And next came the black demons from Catalonia, with great spreading wings like those of a bat, which swept terror and misery through the world as they beat upon the air. And joined to these were the goozle goblins, with long talons as sharp as swords, with which they clawed the flesh from their foes. Finally, every mountain Agua in the world had come to participate in the great battle with the immortals. The king Agua looked around upon this vast army, and his heart beat high with wicked pride, for he believed he would surely triumph over his gentle enemies, who had never before been known to fight. But the master woodsman had not been idle. None of his people was used to warfare, yet now that they were called upon to face the host of evil, they willingly prepared for the fray. Ak had commanded them to assemble in the Laughing Valley, where Claus, ignorant of the terrible battle that was to be waged on his account, was quietly making his toys. Soon the entire valley, from hill to hill, was filled with little immortals. The master woodsman stood first, bearing a gleaming axe that shone like burnished silver. Next came the Riles, armed with sharp thorns from bramble bushes. Then the Nooks, bearing the spears they used when they were forced to prod their savage beasts into submission. The fairies, dressed in white gauze with rainbow-hued wings, bore golden wands, and the wood nymphs, in their uniforms of oak-leaf green, carried switches from the ash trees as weapons. Loud laughed the Agua King when he beheld the size and the arms of his foes. To be sure, the mighty axe of the woodsman was to be dreaded, but the sweet-faced nymphs and the pretty fairies, the gentle riles and crooked nooks, were such harmless folk that he almost felt shame at having called such a terrible host to oppose them. Since these fools dare fight, he said to the leader of the Tattery Giants, I will overwhelm them with our evil powers. To begin the battle, he poised a great stone in his left hand and cast it full against the sturdy form of the master woodsman, who turned it aside with his axe. Then rushed the three-eyed giants of Tattery upon the nooks, and the goozle goblins upon the riles, and the fire-breathing dragons upon the sweet fairies. Because the nymphs were Ak's own people, the band of Aguas sought them out, thinking to overcome them with ease. But it is the law that while evil, unopposed, may accomplish terrible deeds, the powers of good can never be overthrown when opposed to evil. Well had it been for the King Agua had he known the law. His ignorance cost him his existence, for one flash of the axe borne by the master woodsman of the world cleft the wicked king in twain and rid the earth of the vilest creature it contained. Greatly marveled the tattery giants when the spears of the little nooks pierced their thick walls of flesh and sent them reeling to the ground with howls of agony. Woe came upon the sharp-taloned goblins when the thorns of the riles reached their savage hearts and let their lifeblood sprinkle all the plain, and afterward from every drop of thistle grew. The dragons paused astonished before the fairy wands, from whence rushed a power that caused their fiery breaths to flow back on themselves so that they shriveled away and died. As for the Aguas, they had scant time to realize how they were destroyed, for the ash switches of the nymphs bore a charm unknown to any Agua, and turned their foes into clods of earth at the slightest touch. When Ak leaned upon his gleaming axe and turned to look over the field of battle, he saw the few giants who were able to run disappearing over the distant hills on their return to Tattery. The goblins had perished every one, as had the terrible dragons, while all that remained of the wicked Aguas was a great number of earthen hillocks dotting the plain. And now the immortals melted from the valley like dew at sunrise, to resume their duties in the forest, while Ak walked slowly and thoughtfully to the house of Claus and entered. You have many toys ready for the children, said the woodsman, and now you may carry them across the plain to the dwellings and the villages without fear. Will not the Aguas harm me? asked Claus eagerly. 
The Aguas, said Ak, have perished. Now I will gladly have done with wicked spirits and with fighting and bloodshed. It was not from choice that I told of the Aguas and their allies, and of their great battle with the immortals. They were part of this history, and could not be avoided. Chapter 8 The First Journey with the Reindeer Those were happy days for Claus, when he carried his accumulation of toys to the children who had awaited them so long. During his imprisonment in the valley, he had been so industrious that all his shelves were filled with playthings, and after quickly supplying the little ones living nearby, he saw he must now extend his travels to wider fields. Remembering the time when he had journeyed with Ak through all the world, he knew children were everywhere, and he longed to make as many as possible happy with his gifts. So he loaded a great sack with all kinds of toys, slung it upon his back that he might carry it more easily, and started off on a longer trip than he had yet undertaken. Wherever he showed his merry face, in hamlet or in farmhouse, he received a cordial welcome, for his fame had spread into far lands. At each village the children swarmed about him, following his footsteps wherever he went, and the women thanked him gratefully for the joy he brought their little ones, and the men looked upon him curiously that he should devote his time to such queer occupation as toy-making. But every one smiled on him and gave him kindly words, and Claus felt amply repaid for his long journey. When the sack was empty, he went back again to the Laughing Valley, and once more filled it to the brim. This time he followed another road into a different part of the country, and he carried happiness to many children, who never before had owned a toy, or guessed that such a delightful plaything existed. After a third journey, so far away that Claus was many days walking the distance, the store of toys became exhausted, and without delay he set about making a fresh supply. From seeing so many children and studying their tastes, he had acquired several new ideas about toys. The dollies were, he had found, the most delightful of all playthings for babies and little girls, and often those who could not say dolly would call for a doll in their sweet baby talk. So Claus resolved to make many dolls of all sizes and to dress them in bright colored clothing. The older boys, and even some of the girls, loved the images of animals, so he still made cats and elephants and horses, and many of the little fellows had musical natures and longed for drums and cymbals and whistles and horns, so he made a number of toy drums with tiny sticks to beat them with, and he made whistles from willow trees and horns from the bog reeds and cymbals from bits of beaten metal. All this kept him busily at work, and before he realized it the winter season came, with deeper snows than usual, and he knew he could not leave the valley with his heavy pack. Moreover, the next trip would take him farther from home than ever before, and Jack Frost was mischievous enough to nip his nose and ears if he undertook the long journey while the Frost King reigned. The Frost King was Jack's father, and never reproved him for his pranks. So Claus remained at his workbench, but he whistled and sang as merrily as ever, for he would allow no disappointment to sour his temper or make him unhappy. One bright morning he looked from his window and saw two of the deer he had known in the forest walking toward his house. Claus was surprised, not that the friendly deer should visit him, but that they walked on the surface of the snow as easily as if it were solid ground, notwithstanding the fact that throughout the valley the snow lay many feet deep. He had walked out of his house a day or two before and had sunk to his armpits in a drift. So when the deer came near, he opened the door and called to them. "'Good morning, Flossie. Tell me, how are you able to walk on the snow so easily?' "'It is frozen hard,' answered Flossie. "'The Frost King has breathed on it,' said Glossie, coming up, "'and the surface is now as solid as ice.' "'Perhaps,' remarked Claus thoughtfully, "'I might now carry my packs of toys to the children.' "'Is it a long journey?' asked Flossie. Yes, it will take me many days, for the pack is heavy, answered Claus. Then the snow would melt before you could get back, said the deer. You must wait until spring, Claus. Claus sighed. Had I your fleet feet, said he, I could make the journey in a day. But you have not, returned Glossie, looking at his own slender legs with pride. Perhaps I could ride upon your back, Claus ventured to remark after a pause. Oh, no, our backs are not strong enough to bear your weight, said Flossie decidedly. But if you had a sledge and could harness us to it, we might draw you easily and your pack as well. I'll make a sledge, exclaimed Claus. Will you agree to draw me if I do? Well, replied Flossie, we must first go and ask the Nooks. 
who are our guardians, for permission. But if they consent, and you can make a sledge and harness, we will gladly assist you. Then go at once, cried Claus eagerly. I am sure the friendly nooks will give their consent, and by the time you are back, I shall be ready to harness you to my sledge. Flossie and Glossie, being dear of much intelligence, had long wished to see the great world, so they gladly ran over the frozen snow to ask the nooks if they might carry Claus on his journey. Meantime, the toy maker hurriedly began the construction of a sledge, using material from his woodpile. He made two long runners that turned upward at the front ends, and across these nailed short boards to make a platform. It was soon completed, but was as rude in appearance as it is possible for a sledge to be. The harness was more difficult to prepare, but Claus twisted strong cords together and knotted them so they would fit around the necks of the deer, in the shape of a collar. From these ran other cords to fasten the deer to the front of the sledge. Before the work was completed, Glossie and Flossie were back from the forest, having been granted permission by Will Nook to make the journey with Claus, provided they would be to Bursey by daybreak the next morning. That is not a very long time, said Flossie, but we are swift and strong, and if we get started by this evening, we can travel many miles during the night. Claus decided to make the attempt, so he hurried on his preparations as fast as possible. After a time, he fastened the collars around the necks of his steeds and harnessed them to his rude sledge. Then he placed a stool on the little platform to serve as a seat, and filled a sack with his prettiest toys. How do you intend to guide us? asked Glossy. We have never been out of the forest before, except to visit your house, so we shall not know the way. Claus thought about that for a moment. Then he brought more cords, and fastened two of them to the spreading antlers of each deer, one on the right, and the other on the left. Those will be my reins, said Claus, and when I pull them to the right, or to the left, you must go in that direction. If I do not pull the reins at all, you may go straight ahead. Very well, answered Glossy and Flossie, and then they asked, Are you ready? Claus seated himself upon the stool, placed the sack of toys at his feet, and then gathered up the reins. All ready, he shouted. Away we go. The deer leaned forward, lifted their slender limbs, and the next moment away flew the sledge over the frozen snow. The swiftness of the motion surprised Claus, for in a few strides they were across the valley and gliding over the broad plain beyond. The day had melted into evening by the time they started, for swiftly as Claus had worked, many hours had been consumed in making his preparations. But the moon shone brightly to light their way, and Claus soon decided it was just as pleasant to travel by night as by day. The deer liked it better, for although they wished to see something of the world, they were timid about meeting men, and now all the dwellers in the towns and farmhouses were sound asleep and could not see them. Away and away they sped, on and on, over the hills and through the valleys and across the plains, until they reached a village where Claus had never been before. He called on them to stop, and they immediately obeyed. But a new difficulty now presented itself, for the people had locked their doors when they went to bed, and Claus found he could not enter the houses to leave his toys. I am afraid, my friends, we have made our journey for nothing, said he, for I shall be obliged to carry my playthings back home again without giving them to the children of this village. What's the matter? asked Flossie. The doors are locked, answered Claus, and I cannot get in. Glossy looked around at the houses. The snow was quite deep in that village, and just before them was a roof only a few feet above the sledge. A broad chimney, which seemed to Glossy big enough to admit Claus, was at the peak of the roof. Why don't you climb down that chimney? asked Glossy. Claus looked at it. That would be easy enough if I were on top of the roof, he answered. Then hold fast, and we will take you there, said the deer, and they gave one bound to the roof and landed beside the big chimney. Good, cried Claus, well pleased, and he slung the pack of toys over his shoulder and got into the chimney. There was plenty of soot on the bricks, but he did not mind that and by placing his hands and knees against the sides, he crept downward until he had reached the fireplace. Leaping lightly over the smoldering coals, he found himself in a large sitting-room where a dim light was burning. From this room, two doorways led into smaller chambers. In one, a woman lay asleep with a baby beside her in a crib. Claus laughed, but he did not laugh aloud, for fear of waking the baby. Then he slipped a big doll from his pack and laid it in the crib. The little one smiled as if it dreamed of the pretty plaything it was to find on the morrow, and Claus crept softly from the room and entered at the other doorway. Here were two boys, fast asleep with their arms around each other's neck. Claus gazed at them lovingly a moment, 
and then placed upon the bed a drum, two horns, and a wooden elephant. He did not linger, now that his work in his house was done, but climbed the chimney again and seated himself on his sledge. Can you find another chimney? he asked the reindeer. Easily enough, replied Glossy and Flossie. Down to the edge of the roof they raced, and then, without pausing, leaped through the air to the top of the next building, where a huge, old-fashioned chimney stood. Don't be so long this time, called Flossie, or we shall never get back to the forest by daybreak. Claus made a trip down this chimney also, and found five children sleeping in the house, all of whom were quickly supplied with toys. When he returned, the deer sprang to the next roof, but on descending the chimney, Claus found no children there at all. That was not often the case in this village, however, so he lost less time than you might suppose in visiting the dreary homes where there were no little ones. When he had climbed down the chimneys of all the houses in that village and had left a toy for every sleeping child, Claus found that his great sack was not yet half emptied. Onward, friends, he called to the deer. We must seek another village. So away they dashed, although it was long past midnight, and in a surprisingly short time they came to a large city, the largest Claus had ever visited since he began to make toys. Nothing daunted by the throng of houses, he set to work at once, and his beautiful steeds carried him rapidly from one roof to another, only the highest being beyond the leaps of the agile deer. At last the supply of toys was exhausted, and Claus seated himself in the sledge with the empty sack at his feet and turned the heads of Glossy and Flossie toward home. Presently Flossie asked, "'What is that gray streak in the sky?' "'It is the coming dawn of day,' answered Claus, surprised to find that it was so late. "'Good gracious!' exclaimed Glossy. "'Then we shall not be home by daybreak, and the nooks will punish us and never let us come again.' "'We must race for the Laughing Valley and make our best speed,' returned Flossie. "'So hold fast, friend Claus.' Claus held fast, and the next moment was flying so swiftly over the snow that he could not see the trees as they whirled past. Up hill and down dale, swift as an arrow shot from a bow they dashed, and Claus shut his eyes to keep the wind out of them and left the deer to find their own way. It seemed to him they were plunging through space, but he was not at all afraid. The nooks were severe masters and must be obeyed at all hazards, and the gray streak in the sky was growing brighter every moment. Finally, the sledge came to a sudden stop, and Claus, who was taken unawares, tumbled from his seat into a snowdrift. As he picked himself up, he heard the deer crying, Quick, friend, quick! Cut away our harness! He drew his knife and rapidly severed the cords, and then he wiped the moisture from his eyes and looked around him. The sledge had come to a stop in the Laughing Valley, only a few feet, he found, from his own door. In the east, the day was breaking, and turning to the edge of Burzee, he saw Glossie and Flossie just disappearing in the forest. Chapter 9 Santa Claus Claus thought that none of the children would ever know where the toys came from, which they found by their bedsides when they wakened the following morning. But kindly deeds are sure to bring fame, and fame has many wings to carry its tidings into far lands. So for miles and miles in every direction, people were talking of Claus and his wonderful gifts to children. The sweet generousness of his work caused a few selfish folk to sneer, but even these were forced to admit their respect for a man so gentle-natured that he loved to devote his life to pleasing the helpless little ones of his race. Therefore, the inhabitants of every city and village had been eagerly watching the coming of Claus, and remarkable stories of his beautiful playthings were told the children to keep them patient and contented. When, on the morning following the first trip of Claus with his deer, the little ones came running to their parents with the pretty toys they had found, and asked from whence they came. There was but one reply to the question. The good Claus must have been here, my darlings, for his are the only toys in all the world. But how did he get in? asked the children. At this the fathers shook their heads, being themselves unable to understand how Claus had gained admittance to their homes. But the mothers, watching the glad faces of their dear ones, whispered that the good Claus was no mortal man, but assuredly a saint, and they piously blessed his name for the happiness he had bestowed upon their children. A saint, said one, with bowed head, has no need to unlock doors if it pleases him to enter our homes. And afterward, when a child was naughty or disobedient, its mother would say, You must pray to the good Santa Claus for forgiveness. He does not like naughty children, and unless you repent, he will bring you no more pretty toys. But Santa Claus himself would not have approved this speech. 
He brought toys to the children because they were little and helpless, and because he loved them. He knew that the best of children were sometimes naughty, and that the naughty ones were often good. It is the way with children the world over, and he would not have changed their natures had he possessed the power to do so. And that is how our Claus became Santa Claus. It is possible for any man, by good deeds, to enshrine himself as a saint in the hearts of the people. Chapter 10 Christmas Eve The day that broke as Claus returned from his night ride with Glossy and Flossy brought to him a new trouble. Will Nook, the chief guardian of the deer, came to him, surly and ill-tempered, to complain that he had kept Glossy and Flossy beyond daybreak in opposition to his orders. Yet it could not have been very long after daybreak, said Claus. It was one minute after, answered Will Nook, and that is as bad as one hour. I shall set the stinging gnats on Glossy and Flossy, and they will thus suffer terribly for their disobedience. Don't do that, begged Claus. It was my fault. But Will Nook would listen to no excuses and went away grumbling and growling in his ill-natured way. For this reason, Claus entered the forest to consult Nasil about rescuing the good deer from punishment. To his delight, he found his old friend, the master woodsman, seated in the circle of nymphs. Ak listened to the story of the night journey to the children and of the great assistance the deer had been to Claus by drawing his sledge over the frozen snow. I do not wish my friends to be punished if I can save them, said the toy maker, when he had finished the relation. They were only one minute late, and they ran swifter than a bird flies to get home before daybreak. Ak stroked his beard thoughtfully a moment, and then sent for the prince of the nooks, who rules all his people in Berzee, and also for the queen of the fairies and the prince of the riles. When all had assembled, Claus told his story again at Ak's command, and then the master addressed the prince of the nooks, saying, the good work that Claus is doing among mankind deserves the support of every honest immortal. Already he is called a saint in some of the towns, and before long the name of Santa Claus will be lovingly known in every home that is blessed with children. Moreover, he is a son of our forest, so we owe him our encouragement. You, ruler of the Nooks, have known him these many years. Am I not right in saying he deserves our friendship? The Prince Crooked and sour of visage, as all nooks are, looked only upon the dead leaves at his feet and muttered, You are the master woodsman of the world. Ak smiled, but continued in soft tones. It seems that the deer, which are guarded by your people, can be of great assistance to Claus. And as they seem willing to draw his sledge, I beg that you will permit him to use their services whenever he pleases. The prince did not reply, but tapped the curled point of his sandal with the tip of his spear, as if in thought. Then the fairy queen spoke to him in this way. If you consent to Ak's request, I will see that no harm comes to your deer while they are away from the forest. And the prince of the riles added, For my part, I will allow to every deer that assists Claus the privilege of eating my casa plants, which give strength, and my grawl plants, which give fleetness of foot, and my marbon plants, which give long life. And the queen of the nymphs said, the deer which draw the sledge of claws will be permitted to bathe in the forest pool of nares, which will give them sleek coats and wonderful beauty. The prince of the nooks, hearing these promises, shifted uneasily on his seat, for in his heart he hated to refuse a request of his fellow immortals, although they were asking an unusual favor at his hands, and the nooks are unaccustomed to granting favors of any kind. Finally he turned to his servants and said, Call Will Nook. When Surly Will came and heard the demands of the immortals, he protested loudly against granting them. Deer are deer, said he, and nothing but deer. Were they horses, it would be right to harness them like horses. But no one harnesses deer, because they are free, wild creatures, owing no service of any sort to mankind. It would degrade my deer to labor for Claus, who is only a man in spite of the friendship lavished on him by the immortals. You have heard, said the prince to Ak. There is truth in what Will says. Call Glossy and Flossy, returned the master. The deer were brought to the conference, and Ack asked them if they objected to drawing the sledge for Claus. No, indeed, replied Glossy. We enjoyed the trip very much. And we tried to get home by daybreak, added Flossy, but were unfortunately a minute too late. A minute lost at daybreak doesn't matter, said Ack. You are forgiven for that delay. Provided it does not happen again said the prince of the nooks sternly. 
And will you permit them to make another journey with me? asked Claus eagerly. The prince reflected while he gazed at Will, who was scowling, and at the master woodsman, who was smiling. Then he stood up and addressed the company as follows. Since you all urge me to grant the favor, I will permit the deer to go with Claus once every year on Christmas Eve, provided they always return to the forest by daybreak. He may select any number he pleases, up to ten, to draw his sledge, and those shall be known among us as reindeer, to distinguish them from the others. And they shall bathe in the pool of nares, and eat the cossa and grawl and marbon plants, and shall be under the especial protection of the fairy queen. And now cease scowling, Will Nook, for my words shall be obeyed. He hobbled quickly away through the trees to avoid the thanks of Claus and the approval of the other immortals, and Will, looking as cross as ever, followed him. But Ack was satisfied, knowing that he could rely on the promise of the prince, however grudgingly given, and Glossy and Flossie ran home, kicking up their heels delightedly at every step. When is Christmas Eve? Claus asked the master. In about ten days, he replied. Then I cannot use the deer this year, said Claus thoughtfully, for I shall not have time enough to make my sack full of toys. The shrewd prince foresaw that, responded Ack, and therefore named Christmas Eve as the day you might use the deer, knowing it would cause you to lose an entire year. If I only had the toys the Aguas stole from me, said Claus sadly, I could easily fill my sack for the children. Where are they? asked the master. I do not know, replied Claus, but the wicked Aguas probably hid them in the mountains. Ack turned to the fairy queen. Can you find them? he asked. I will try, she said brightly. Then Claus went back to the Laughing Valley to work as hard as he could, and a band of fairies immediately flew to the mountain that had been haunted by the Aguas and began a search for the stolen toys. The fairies, as we well know, possess wonderful powers. But the cunning Aguas had hidden the toys in a deep cave and covered the opening with rocks, so no one could look in. Therefore, all search for the missing playthings proved in vain for several days, and Claus, who sat at home waiting for the news from the fairies, almost despaired of getting the toys before Christmas Eve. He worked hard every moment, but it took considerable time to carve out and to shape each toy and to paint it properly, so that on the morning before Christmas Eve, only half of one small shelf above the window was filled with playthings ready for the children. But on this morning, the fairies who were searching in the mountains had a new thought. They joined hands and moved in a straight line through the rocks that formed the mountain, beginning at the topmost peak and working downward, so that no spot could be missed by their bright eyes. And at last they discovered the cave where the toys had been heaped up by the wicked Aguas. It did not take them long to burst open the mouth of the cave, and then each one seized as many toys as he could carry, and they all flew to Claus and laid the treasure before him. The good man was rejoiced to receive, just in the nick of time, such a store of playthings with which to load his sledge, and he sent word to Glossy and Flossie to be ready for the journey at nightfall. With all his other labors he had managed to find time, since the last trip, to repair the harness and to strengthen his sledge, so that when the deer came to him at twilight he had no difficulty in harnessing them. "'We must go in another direction tonight,' he told them. "'Where we shall find children I have never yet visited.' and we must travel fast and work quickly, for my sack is full of toys and running over the brim. So just as the moon arose, they dashed out of the Laughing Valley and across the plain and over the hills to the south. The air was sharp and frosty, and the starlight touched the snowflakes and made them glitter like countless diamonds. The reindeer leaped onward with strong, steady bounds, and Claus's heart was so light and merry that he laughed and sang while the wind whistled past his ears, with a ho-ho-ho and a ha-ha-ha and a ho-ho-ho-ha-hee. Now away we go o'er the frozen snow, as merry as we can be. Jack Frost heard him and came racing up with his nippers, but when he saw it was Claus, he laughed and turned away again. The mother owls heard him as he passed near the wood and stuck their heads out of the hollow places in the tree trunks. But when they saw who it was, they whispered to the owlets nestling near them that it was only Santa Claus carrying toys to the children. It is strange how much those mother owls know. Claus stopped at some of the scattered farmhouses and climbed down the chimneys to leave presents for the babies. Soon after he reached a village and worked merrily for an hour distributing playthings among the sleeping little ones. Then away again he went, signaling his joyous carol. Now away we go o'er the gleaming snow while the deer run swift and free. For to girls and boys we carry the toys that will fill their hearts with glee. 
The deer liked the sound of his deep bass voice and kept time to the song with their hoofbeats on the hard snow. But soon they stopped at another chimney, and Santa Claus, with sparkling eyes and face brushed red by the wind, climbed down its smoky sides and left a present for every child the house contained. It was a merry, happy night. Swiftly the deer ran, and busily their driver worked to scatter his gifts among the sleeping children. But the sack was empty at last, and the sledge headed homeward, and now again the race with daybreak began. Glossy and Flossie had no mind to be rebuked a second time for tardiness, so they fled with a swiftness that enabled them to pass the gale on which the Frost King rode, and soon brought them to the Laughing Valley. It is true, when Claus released his steeds from their harness, the eastern sky was streaked with gray, but Glossy and Flossie were deep in the forest before day fairly broke. Claus was so wearied with his night's work that he threw himself upon his bed and fell into a deep slumber. And while he slept, the Christmas sun appeared in the sky and shone upon hundreds of happy homes where the sound of childish laughter proclaimed that Santa Claus had made them a visit. God bless him. It was his first Christmas Eve, and for hundreds of years since then, he has nobly fulfilled his mission to bring happiness to the hearts of little children. Chapter 11 How the First Stockings Were Hung by the Chimneys When you remember that no child, until Santa Claus began his travels, had ever known the pleasure of possessing a toy, you will understand how joy crept into the homes of those who had been favored with a visit from the good man, and how they talked of him day by day in loving tones and were honestly grateful for his kindly deeds. It is true that great warriors and mighty kings and clever scholars of that day were often spoken of by the people, but no one of them was so greatly beloved as Santa Claus, because none other was so unselfish as to devote himself to making others happy. For a generous deed lives longer than a great battle or a king's decree of a scholar's essay, because it spreads and leaves its mark on all nature and endures through many generations. The bargain made with the Nook Prince changed the plans of Claus for all future time. For being able to use the reindeer on but one night of each year, he decided to devote all the other days to the manufacture of playthings, and on Christmas Eve to carry them to the children of the world. But a year's work would, he knew, result in a vast accumulation of toys, so he resolved to build a new sledge that would be larger and stronger and better fitted for swift travel than the old and clumsy one. His first act was to visit the Gnome King, with whom he made a bargain to exchange three drums, a trumpet, and two dolls, for a pair of fine steel runners, curled beautifully at the ends. For the Gnome King had children of his own, who, living in the hollows under the earth and mines and caverns, needed something to amuse them. In three days the steel runners were ready, and when Claus brought the playthings to the Gnome King, his majesty was so greatly pleased with them that he presented Claus with a string of sweet-toned sleigh bells in addition to the runners. "'These will please Glossy and Flossy,' said Claus, as he jingled the bells and listened to their merry sound. "'But I should have two strings of bells, one for each deer.' "'Bring me another trumpet and a toy cat,' replied the king, "'and you shall have a second string of bells like the first. "'It's a bargain!' cried Claus, and he went home again for the toys. The new sledge was carefully built, the nooks bringing plenty of strong but thin boards to use in its construction. Claus made a high, rounding dashboard to keep off the snow cast behind the fleet hoofs of the deer, and he made high sides to the platform so that many toys could be carried, and finally he mounted the sledge upon the slender steel runners made by the Gnome King. It was certainly a handsome sledge, and big and roomy. Claus painted it in bright colors, although no one was likely to see it during his midnight journeys. When all was finished, he sent for Glossy and Flossie to come look at it. The deer admired the sledge, but gravely declared it was too big and heavy for them to draw. We might pull it over the snow, to be sure, said Glossy, but we would not pull it fast enough to enable us to visit the faraway cities and villages and return to the forest by daybreak. Then I must add two more deer to my team, declared Claus after a moment's thought. The Nook Prince allowed you as many as ten. Why not use them all? asked Flossie. Then we could speed like the lightning and leap to the highest roofs with ease. A team of ten reindeer, cried Claus delightedly. That will be splendid. Please return to the forest at once and select eight other deer as like yourselves as possible. And you must all eat the casa plant to become strong, and of the grawl plant to become fleet of foot, and of the marbon plant, that you may live long to accompany me on my journeys. Likewise, it will be well for you to bathe in the pool of Nares, which the lovely Queen Zerline declares will render you rarely beautiful. Should you perform these duties faithfully, there is no doubt that on next Christmas Eve my ten reindeer will be the most powerful and beautiful steeds the world has ever seen. 
So Glossie and Flossie went to the forest to choose their mates, and Claus began to consider the question of a harness for them all. In the end, he called upon Peter Nook for assistance, for Peter's heart is as kind as his body is crooked, and he is remarkably shrewd as well, and Peter agreed to furnish strips of tough leather for the harness. This leather was cut from the skins of lions that had reached such an advanced age that they died naturally, and on one side was tawny hair, while the other side was cured to the softness of velvet by the deft nooks. When Claus received these strips of leather, he sewed them neatly into a harness for the ten reindeer, and it proved strong and serviceable and lasted him for many years. The harness and sledge were prepared at odd times, for Claus devoted most of his days to the making of toys. These were now much better than the first ones had been, for the immortals often came to his house to watch him work and to offer suggestions. It was Nasil's idea to make some of the dolls say Papa and Mama. It was a thought of the nooks to put a squeak inside the lambs, so that when a child squeezed them, they would say, Baa! And the fairy queen advised Claus to put whistles in the birds, so they could be made to sing, and wheels on the horses so children could draw them around. Many animals perished in the forest from one cause or another, and their fur was brought to Claus that he might cover with it the small images of beasts he made for playthings. A merry Ryle suggested that Claus make a donkey with a nodding head, which he did, and afterward found that it amused the little ones immensely. And so the toys grew in beauty and attractiveness every day, until they were the wonder of even the immortals. When another Christmas Eve drew near, there was a monster load of beautiful gifts for the children ready to be loaded upon the big sledge. Claus filled three sacks to the brim and tucked every corner of the sledge box full of toys besides. Then at twilight the ten reindeer appeared, and Flossie introduced them all to Claus. They were racer and pacer, reckless and speckless, fearless and peerless, and ready and steady. Who with Glossy and Flossie made up the ten who have traversed the world these hundreds of years with their generous master? They were all exceedingly beautiful, with slender limbs, spreading antlers, velvety dark eyes, and smooth coats of fawn-colored spotted with white. Claus loved them at once, and has loved them ever since, for they are loyal friends and have rendered him priceless service. The new harness fitted them nicely, and soon they were all fastened to the sledge by twos, with Glossy and Flossie in the lead. These wore the strings of sleigh bells, and were so delighted with the music they made that they kept prancing up and down to make the bells ring. Claus now seated himself in the sledge, drew a warm robe over his knees and his fur cap over his ears, and cracked his long whip as a signal to start. Instantly the ten leaped forward and were away like the wind, while Jolly Claus laughed gleefully to see them run and shouted a song in his big hearty voice. With a ho-ho-ho and a ha-ha-ha and a ho-ho-ha-ha-hee, now away we go o'er the frozen snow, as merry as we can be. There are many joys in our load of toys, as many a child will know. We'll scatter them wide on our wild night ride, o'er the crisp and sparkling snow. Now it was on this same Christmas Eve, the little Margot and her brother Dick and her cousins Ned and Sarah, who were visiting at Margot's house, came in from making a snowman, with their clothes damp, their mittens dripping, and their shoes and stockings wet through and through. They were not scolded, for Margot's mother knew the snow was melting, but they were sent early to bed that their clothes might be hung over chairs to dry. The shoes were placed on the red tiles of the hearth, where the heat from the hot embers would strike them, and the stockings were carefully hung in a row by the chimney, directly over the fireplace. That was the reason Santa Claus noticed them when he came down the chimney that night and all the household were fast asleep. He was in a tremendous hurry, and seeing the stockings all belonged to children, he quickly stuffed his toys into them and dashed up the chimney again, appearing on the roof so suddenly that the reindeer were astonished at his agility. I wish they would all hang up their stockings, he thought, as he drove to the next chimney. It would save me a lot of time and I could then visit more children before daybreak. When Margot and Dick and Ned and Sarah jumped out of bed next morning and ran downstairs to get their stockings from the fireplace, they were filled with delight to find the toys from Santa Claus inside them. In fact, I think they found more presents in their stockings than any other children of that city had received, for Santa Claus was in a hurry and did not stop to count the toys. Of course, they told all their little friends about it, and of course, every one of them decided to hang his own stockings by the fireplace the next Christmas Eve. Even Bessie Blythesome, who made a visit to that city with her father, the great Lord of Lurd, 
heard the story from the children, and hung her own pretty stockings by the chimney when she returned home at Christmas time. On his next trip, Santa Claus found so many stockings hung up in anticipation of his visit that he could fill them in a jiffy and be away again in half the time required to hunt the children up and place the toys by their bedsides. The custom grew year after year and has always been a great help to Santa Claus, and with so many children to visit, he surely needs all the help we are able to give him. Chapter 12 The First Christmas Tree Claus had always kept his promise to the Nooks by returning to the Laughing Valley by daybreak, but only the swiftness of his reindeer has enabled him to do this, for he travels over all the world. He loved his work, and he loved the brisk night ride on his sledge and the gay tinkle of the sleigh bells. On that first trip with the ten reindeer, only Glossy and Flossy wore bells. But each year thereafter, for eight years, Claus carried presents to the children of the Gnome King, and that good-natured monarch gave him in return a string of bells at each visit, so that finally every one of the ten deer was supplied. And you may imagine what a merry tune the bells played as the sledge sped over the snow. The children's stockings were so long that it required a great many toys to fill them, and soon Claus found there were other things besides toys that children love. So he sent some of the fairies, who were always his good friends, into the tropics, from whence they returned with great bags full of oranges and bananas, which they had plucked from the trees. And other fairies flew to the wonderful valley of Funnyland, where delicious candies and bonbons grow thickly on the bushes, and returned laden with many boxes of sweetmeats for the little ones. These things Santa Claus, on each Christmas Eve, placed in the long stockings, together with his toys, and the children were glad to get them, you may be sure. There are also warm countries where there is no snow in winter, but Claus and his reindeer visited them as well as the colder climes, for there were little wheels inside the runners of his sledge, which permitted it to run as smoothly over bare ground as on the snow. And the children who lived in the warm countries learned to know the name of Santa Claus as well as those who lived nearer to the Laughing Valley. Once, just as the reindeer were ready to start on their yearly trip, a fairy came to Claus and told him of three little children who lived beneath a rude tent of skins on a broad plain where there were no trees whatever. These poor babies were miserable and unhappy, for their parents were ignorant people who neglected them sadly. Claus resolved to visit these children before he returned home, and during his ride he picked up the bushy top of a pine tree which the wind had broken off and placed it in his sledge. It was nearly morning when the deer stopped before the lonely tent of skins where the poor children lay asleep. Claus at once planted the bit of pine tree in the sand and stuck many candles on the branches. Then he hung some of his prettiest toys on the tree, as well as several bags of candies. It did not take long to do all this, for Santa Claus works quickly. And when all was ready, he lighted the candles, and thrusting his head in at the opening of the tent, he shouted, "'Merry Christmas, little ones!' With that, he leaped into his sledge and was out of sight before the children, rubbing the sleep from their eyes, could come out to see who had called them. You can imagine the wonder and joy of those little ones who had never in their lives known a real pleasure before. When they saw the tree, sparkling with lights that shone brilliant in the gray dawn and hung with toys enough to make them happy for years to come, they joined hands and danced around the tree, shouting and laughing, until they were obliged to pause for breath and their parents also came out to look and wonder, and therefore had more respect and consideration for their children, since Santa Claus had honored them with such beautiful gifts. The idea of the Christmas tree pleased Claus, and so the following year he carried many of them in his sledge and set them up in the homes of poor people who seldom saw trees, and placed candles and toys on the branches. Of course, he could not carry enough trees in one load of all who wanted them, but in some homes the fathers were able to get trees and have them all ready for Santa Claus when he arrived. And these the good Claus always decorated as prettily as possible and hung with toys enough for all the children who came to see the tree lighted. These novel ideas and the generous manner in which they were carried out made the children long for that one night in the year when their friend Santa Claus should visit them. And as such anticipation is very pleasant and comforting, the little ones gleaned much happiness by wondering what would happen when Santa Claus next arrived. Perhaps you remember that stern Baron Braun who once drove Claus from his castle and forbade him to visit his children? Well, many years afterward, when the old Baron was dead and his son ruled in his place, the new Baron Braun came to the house of Claus with his train of knights and pages and henchmen, and dismounting from his charger, bared his head humbly before the friend of children. My father did not know your goodness and worth, he said. 
and therefore threaten to hang you from the castle walls. But I have children of my own, who long for a visit from Santa Claus, and I have come to beg that you will favor them hereafter, as you do other children. Claus was pleased with this speech, for Castle Braun was the only place he had never visited, and he gladly promised to bring presents to the Baron's children the next Christmas Eve. The Baron went away contented, and Claus kept his promise faithfully. Thus did this man, through very goodness, conquer the hearts of all, and it is no wonder he was ever merry and gay, for there was no home in the wide world where he was not welcomed more royally than any king. Thank you so much for listening. Please join me next time as we follow Claus through old age. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. You can email us at thisisitpods at yahoo.com. Find us on Facebook at This Is It Podcast. And we are also on Instagram at This Is It Pods. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you have enjoyed this so far. Please share it with your friends. And I wish you a happy holidays. See you next time.